Hello and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. I'm Duncan Rayburn and here is the penultimate episode in this series on the book of Job, which I have called Footnotes to Job. Um, If you've been listening to the whole series, I just want to say thank you for sticking around. Um, I hope you found these reflections interesting. Obviously, this has not been a detailed exegesis of the text, but um, I've been looking for insights that, that I have really been hoping will be illuminating to you. Before I dive into the main content of this episode, I want to just talk briefly about some plans I have in the way of Patreon rewards. Um, I figured I should do this even though I I generally loathe talking about money and I actually hate asking for money. In stereotypical Enneagram Type 5 style, I'm also reluctant to see myself as anything but self-sufficient, but I have to also be honest with you and with me. Uh, I feel I owe us this much. Uh, For the last two years since I started this thing, I have in fact been running at a loss, which I barely notice considering that I I tend to be having so much fun doing what I'm doing. Um, But I am also aware that this does limit anything that this, this thing could become. I want to really make it as good as possible for me and for you, and your help would, well, it would help. Uh, so you can go onto patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy and become a patron, and you can pledge as little as a dollar per month, whatever you want. It, it will definitely make a difference. Anyway, my, my plan is to work on offering rewards. The first thing worth mentioning is that this series on the Book of Job is going to become a book of sorts, which will be made available for free to some of my Patreon supporters. The book, when it's done, will be, I hope, better than what I've presented here. Um, more jam-packed with insights and clarifications, and possibly a few corrections uh, to what I've said here. I'm always revising my views, so so it's very helpful. I'll, I'll have a chance to, to do that um, when I do turn this into a book. Um, I will also be offering some of my podcast notes to supporters and you'll where you'll get a chance to see my thinking on paper for what it's worth. Um, for those of you who do teach, um, this material could be helpful to you. But um, this is just for starters. I have other plans too, including offering some exclusive mini podcasts on various things not discussed in the main uh, podcast that I find interesting. Uh, so there you have it. Um, glad that's done. (laughs) Thanks for listening to that. But now let's get into the main content of this episode. In this episode, I want to talk about the vital moment when God enters the scene in chapter 38 of the book of Job and condemns Job's friends. Well, he condemns them later on after this fantastic speech. Um, Given that this is a polyphonic text, I am reluctant to make this event of God's showing up too absolute, but it is vital to understanding how profound and subversive the text of the book of Job really is. I've suggested that Job's friends are not always wrong, because they're really not. They say stupid things amidst some good things, but then that's basically something that all of us do. Uh, Well, I guess some of us are more prone to saying mostly stupid things than others are. Job says stupid things too, uh, sometimes things that are eerily close to blasphemy right there in the Bible. And Elihu is there too, and he's telling everyone that they have no idea what they're talking about. But Elihu doesn't exactly clear anything up. Um, And then as a kind of theological cherry on the top of this very magnificent cake, God shows up. Now, actually, even saying this is already problematic. God shows up. 
uh, where was he this whole time? The whole problem of human subjectivity is that it is precisely that. It is subjective. From our point of view, the sun goes around the earth. We call it sunrise and sunset, even though it would be far more accurate to find language that suggests that the earth is the thing that's doing most of the moving. Um, actually, this is a, a kind of helpful metaphor for the whole way that we look at the world. We see things happening, but we forget that we're really the ones seeing them happening. And because we forget this, we also forget how language is shaping our perceptions. We make pronouncements on what is without fully taking into account the fact that what is is only really what seems to us to be what is. This is a, a subtle but important distinction. There's an unavoidable interval between what is and what seems to us to be what is. From our subjective point of view, we read books and we have conversations without necessarily noticing that, in a very real sense, the books we read are reading us too, and the conversations we have are having us too. We're, we're generally spoken by language more than we speak it, but we're, we're so immersed in it that we don't see that that's what's happening. When we're reading, we, we say that the Bible says this or that thing, but we forget that we're the ones doing the reading. So it's saying this or that thing to us. This doesn't mean that there is no objective tr truth, and I'm, I'm not sort of saying that we're, we need to eradicate this idea that the text has anything meaningful to say. That's, in fact, the opposite of what I be, would be trying to get at. What I'm trying to say is that there's always a kind of interconnectedness between objectivity and subjectivity. The objective truth is always subjectively taken in, and it's subjectively translated and subjectively appropriated. Think about this for a moment. It's a phenomenological fact that when we see a cliff, we regard it first and foremost as a falling off place. We feel the falling off placeness of the cliff before we actually know the cliff as a cliff, as a named cliff. And yet, we name the cliff as a cliff. And we forget that we experience the thing first and only then do we reflect on its nature as something named. This is an odd fact, and it's something that the Bible seems to be dead set on exposing, at least the authors of the biblical texts. The Bible, with all of its authors and perspectives and provocations, is constantly leading us back to ourselves, not in a selfish um, sort of way or an egotistical way, but it's trying to force us to take ourselves into account on matters concerning life and ethics and reality and God. In the book of Exodus, Moses shows up at a burning bush and then a voice, presumably God's, says that the ground he is standing on is holy. Did the ground just become holy or was it holy the whole time? Maybe Moses just now woke up to the fact. In other words, he, he woke up to the fact that he is there. He, in a way, wasn't present until he was made aware of his own presence to uh, this holy ground. So Moses here is a symbol of what we all are. We are both active and passive subjects. We actively seek and passively receive. To neglect either our activity or our passivity is, at least as far as I can tell, to become entangled in all kinds of philosophical problems and, and theological impoverishments. 
So with this in mind, when God so-called shows up in the book of Job, we should pay attention. What's happened is probably something else, something almost the opposite. Job has been beating his fist against the sky, so to speak, so much so that the sky just, in a way, broke open for him, and he came to perceive that he had not perceived something before, and now he was able to get it. In piling truth upon dirty, ugly, difficult truth, Job has become more and more open to the possibility that some kind of transcendent truth is in fact accessible to him. And so God's showing up is more like Job's showing up. If Job was unable to recognize the divine presence before now, well, now he can. And he recognizes it rather profoundly to my mind as unrecognizable. It's, it's not that he sees God, but precisely that he doesn't. And yet he knows that something awfully godish has just happened. This is the nature, by the way, of transcendence. It, it is not something perceived, but something that completely transforms our way of perceiving. Um, the event is not so much um, something that, you know, like an event in the world, as, as it is something that that is in us. Um, which is, I think, uh, most people's experience of, of the spiritual, uh, as far as I can understand. When the divine presence shows up, it asks a lot of questions. In fact, that's pretty much all it does. Um, and then right at the end of it all, in chapter 42, this divine presence does the most amazing thing. It rebukes Job's friends. God tells them in no uncertain terms that he disapproves of them. Most of his critique is actually directed at Eliphaz, which I find very interesting, because he is argu arguably the wisest of the three friends, and, and thus in a way the leader of and the mediator of the pack. The main point of God's critique is this. Job's friends have not spoken of him what is right, although apparently Job has. But we know, critical readers that we are, that this is, even in a strictly literal sense, not quite true. Job is undeniably righteous, but he has still said many things that aren't exactly true. He's made assumptions that don't really fit with reality. He's been honest for sure, but honesty and truth are not always the same thing. So what is God talking about when he talks about the fact that Job's friends have not spoken of him what is right while Job has? Well, here I am actually going to side uh, surprisingly, with the traditional reading, I think the traditional reading actually makes really good sense. Job has assumed all along that his terrible situation has had nothing to do with him. He's insisted that it's not that he's done something wrong and, and that's why he needs to be punished. And he's insisted that it's not that he's been ignorant and therefore needs to learn something. He's also insisted that it's not wrong to hurl projections onto the divine. I find that really fascinating. I mean, that comes out in much of the subtext of what Job is saying. But there is more. Right at the start, God was on Job's side, in a way. But he was also, to put it quite mildly, a little bit indifferent towards Job. Job was merely, at least at the start of the narrative, something of a pawn in a he heavenly chess match between God and the Satan character. At the end of the story, with Job in possibly the worst situation anyone could be in, God is now thoroughly on Job's side. Job is right, as this 
uh, d divine interruption seems to think. Not so much because of anything Job has done, um, but more because simply God thinks he's right. His rightness is, in other words, less Job's doing than it is God's being, which is maybe a confusing way of putting it, but I, I think it's the best I can do for now. When I say all of this, I'm acutely aware that I'm coming dangerously close to voluntarism, which is a theological position I actually totally despise. Um, in short, voluntarism suggests that God can call bad things good and good things bad just because he wants to, um, as if God is somehow unsure about his own moral position. But to do so, to adopt this voluntarist position, would suggest that goodness is something that is in fact detached from God's being which I don't think it can be without creating a, a whole host of theological nonsense. Nevertheless, if we read this idea poetically and not literally, which has been my whole modus operandi, there is a very important lesson to be learned. And the lesson is this. God is on the side of the underdog. Now I think, you know, again, this is a poetic idea. God is on the side of being, of creation. But there tends to be a... a priority given in the biblical narratives, and especially here in the book of Job, to the underdog. And God is not just on the side of the underdog, but in a way defiantly and even immorally on the, on the side of the underdog. He appears to affirm the underdog even when the underdog is Cain or the Antichrist, um, <laughs> which I've just said, I realize, probably just to be provocative, um, but there is a chance I'm not joking. Um, although I probably need to think about this a little bit more before <laughs> before I can say for sure. So this underdog hypothesis alone, I'll admit, is, is not a particularly surprising insight for anyone who is familiar with the, the biblical texts. Anyone with even the vaguest sense of the philosophical center of the majority of the biblical narratives will know this. For instance, it's, it's the story of Israel throughout the Bible, um, and it's the story of the people of the way in the New Testament. Jesus' God is on the side of the losers, but there is more to it than this. No matter how much his friends have tried to help, what Job feels, and I think um, it's his subjective experience that is such a vital aspect of this early existentialist text, what Job feels is that he has been made a victim by his friends. And what the God character suggests is that victims should, on the whole, be sided with. The victim is, of course, anyone who has been picked on in any way, anyone who has been ganged up against. Because we live in an age that is overly aware of victims, although perhaps not in the way that God um, in the book of Job is suggesting, we may not realize the, the truly explosive and revolutionary message of this theological move. We're also going to then be kind of tragically prone to oversimplifying it. Uh, for this reason. So here is the kind of gist of what we need to know in a nutshell form. When we survey anthropology and history, and if we pay attention to our present global political climate, we find an astonishing and kind of horrifying fact. The fact is that when people band together in a group or a mob, they assume that they are in the right simply because they are affirming each other's kind of ideological perspective. So everyone getting together assumes that they are right. And what this means is that they 
assume their rightness to some extent because they have cooperative power. There is power here. And there's an idiom which fits this, which says that might makes right. I'm sure you've heard it. It's an alarming thing to assume that, that he who has the power gets to determine what is true. But many people in the world, in fact, believe this. I once had a boss who believed this, that if you're in charge, you get to determine the bounds of rightness or wrongness. This, again, is why I find voluntarism, which is at the center of much Reformed theology, is it's such a deeply troubling thing. It's why certain theolo theologies actually think that, you know, torturing people endlessly in hell is okay, um, without end, of course. Um, but, okay, before I open another theological can of worms. I've kind of done that already uh, before this this episode, but anyway, putting this idea so blatantly, this idea that might makes right, makes it look so ludicrous that most of us would assume it to be something no intelligent modern human being would believe. And yet, when we look a little bit closer, we notice that any form of nationalism adopts this very same logic. The strength of big political parties will easily conform to this logic too. Large group gatherings produce an exaggerated sense of safety. In a group, individuals feel protected and held, and because of this, they feel powerful. You may think of a military rally in World War II, for example, where Hitler, speaking to the crowd, was, was, crowd was imbued with a kind of godlike power, uh, because he felt held, in a way, by the crowd. And, well, you could think of any contemporary political rally. Truth, in such instances, is determined not by correspondence with reality, but by mass consensus, which, I think, is partly how post-truth can even be a thing. If we all agree to ignore the facts, consensus truth, which is really just a mass agreement on the side of a lie, uh, becomes the only game in town worth playing because it's safe. Everyone can agree to be safe in holding their lie together. I've seen whole gatherings of people assume that God is on their side simply because a lot of people are there. Um, the spirit was apparently moving because lots of people were gathered. But maybe it was just mass hysteria. That's something that has to be asked. And the feeling of God was maybe just actually the religious experience typical of mass gatherings. A rock concert could have produced the same feeling. But to bring us back to the book of Job, here God announces that he is not on the side of the gang or the mob or the mass. His divinity is not attached to power in any of the ways that we may want or assume it to be. God is on the side of the weakling, sickly old guy with occasionally imperfect views on what's going on. And God also seems to not care very much for this loser's theologically sophisticated companions. So Job can contradicts himself. He slips over his words, announces his own ignorance um, to the world, but he still feels that he's justified in wanting to meet with God, with his maker. And it turns out it is this meeting that matters. God agrees. This is what is right with Job. Job doesn't want some experience of mass hysteria. He wants something personal. He doesn't want his he doesn't want his friend's theology. He wants his own theology. He wants to figure out his own faith in fear and trembling, so to speak. And this is what God gives him: a personal affirmation. 
Job spoke rightly of God, not because everything he said was spot on, but because he stuck to the point that it is the personal dimension of reality that matters more than the consensus of the mob. Ideology um, has a fairly astonishingly horrible tendency to create victims. Even the best ideas can be used to gang up on other people. People will find a label for themselves, for instance, and then jump to critique anyone who doesn't quite, at least from their limited narrow perspective, fit within their label. And I'm sure you've heard this too. You know, you'll get Christians dismiss atheists and Hindus and Muslims, and atheists will then dismiss anyone with a religion, religious inclination. And you'll have Republicans dismissing Democrats and vice versa, and Marxists dismissing capitalists and vice versa. In fact, I'm pretty sure that there's not a collective in the world that hasn't in some way or other dismissed someone who doesn't conform to their specific horizon of understanding. Ideology creates victims because ideology tends to be rooted in isolated virtues. The whole point of virtue is that it, it works with other virtues. Um, and it is these virtues not isolated. When they're working together, um, they create wholeness and, and vitality. Morality, in fact, is at the root of all ideology. Unfortunately, ideology is usually rooted in very limited moralities. And what happens then is that certain virtues are, in fact, quickly excluded. Um, and as, especially if those virtues would help to balance it out, well, then those virtues get chucked. But what this selection of the victim, this selection of Joe by God does, is undermine this isolation of virtue. It tries to balance things out. And this is why I think it's so ridiculously brilliant. It tries to find values that are willing to hang out together instead of just making a single virtue absolute. Job is from us. He's not Jewish, and yet he is righteous, the most righteous man alive. That's already a clue for us as to what God is getting at when he chooses Job's side. The whole idea in the book of Job is to side with the one who isn't on your side. Not because he or she is always, strictly speaking, correct, but because love is bigger than any individual ideological perspective. God's assumption is that Job is right, not, not because he's correct, but because he senses, I think, a deeper connectedness to all things. Job's friends fear God, they believe God to be right, but Job actually does God the favor of trusting him. Um, and this, I think, is you know, it's a, a really subversive move because in some sense God is set up in the book of Job to not be entirely trustworthy. But, but Job actually trusts him and he loves God. And this seems to count the most. It's the thing that counts um, more than anything else. But again, God's siding with Job seems to me to be more about God's nature than about any inherent merit that Job possesses. Some people will argue with me, of course, because they'll say that what I'm saying looks a lot like moral relativism and the abandonment of truth, you know, just siding with the victim for the sake of siding with the victim. And um, those people would be missing the point. I, I hope you'll see why in, in a moment. The point is that you can, in fact, have all your doctrinal ducks in a row and still be an untransformed individual. And because of that, you could also be someone incapable 
of genuine trust and love. You can even, in your untransformed state, use the truth to scapegoat others. And in doing so, the truth thereby would become a lie. Um, it does no good to speak the truth when trust and love aren't present. And obviously, I've heard people say appalling, stupid, cruel things in the name of so-called love. They have belittled and shamed others by their so-called speaking the truth in love. But here's the thing that may help us to navigate this issue. When truth is spoken in love, it ennobles people. Uh, in any case, love is the affirmation of being, not the denigration of it. This is actually, to me, a pretty good test of any sermon you might ever hear. Uh, or any university lecture, are you ennobled by what is being said? As some New Testament wisdom shows us, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. That's the whole aim, to, to really build up. So God sees the broken man, and he recognizes that he needs to be built up and made whole again. So I'm going to mention, obviously, my, my hermeneutical magic trick. This God is the real one. The one who, who shows up at the end of the story is the real God in a way, not like the one at the start of the story. And I know this may feel like I'm cheating and playing fast and loose with the text. And the reason for that, that is fairly simple. I really am cheating. I'm really pay, playing fast and loose with the text. I'm not really trying to figure out in sort of empirical terms what the text says. I'm dealing with the theopoetics of the text and in so doing, I'm trying to figure out how we could read it and what insights and revelations it might give us. So I hope that you appreciate that I'm not trying to enforce any kind of specific way of seeing things. This is just a, a provocation to help us, um, I guess, practice the idea of polyphonic thinking that I've already suggested. So with all of this in mind, let's get back to the victim. Of course, there are many in our present age that have taken this victim consciousness, this really deeply biblical idea of siding with the victim to a whole new level, possibly some kind of, in a way, demonic level. They've isolated the virtue of compassion and made it usurp all other virtues. They've used the victim to victimize others. It really is the easiest thing in the world to side with the underdog and then find a way to belittle someone else because of the self-righteous feeling that this siding with the siding of the underdog gives you. And this is why it's important to notice another detail in God's little rant to Eliphaz and his buddies at the end of the book of Job. God reprimands and then tells the friends of Job to make sacrifices. In other words, he tells them that he wants restitution. It's not good enough to tell the friends of Job that they're idiots who aren't worth his trouble. He actually wants to fix his relationship with them too. In particular, God explains that he wants Job to pray for his friends because he says that Job's prayer will be acceptable and it will prevent God from dealing with Job's friends in a way that fits their folly. In Job 42 verse 9 we read this, so Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So reconciliation happens because of Job. Again, Job prov proves himself to be a righteous man. In this way, I think G.K. Chesterton's uh, reading of the book of Job is spot on when he notices that Job prefigures Christ. In the Jesus story, we find the best of human beings who has ever lived tortured and murder murdered 
and hung naked on a Roman execution stake. But as he dies, this beaten up broken man, beaten up and broken by the very mob of the people that claimed that they were following him, at least as some parts of the story suggest, this man utters the most astonishing words. He asks God to forgive the people who have treated him so poorly. And this, I think, is a message that's also incredibly clear in the book of Job. Job, in the end, prays for his friends, who, uh, and w which amounts to basically praying for his enemies. He is ennobled despite his victim status, and he, he uses this ennoblement to ennoble his friends too. In fact, this is one of the most amazing things about Job as a character. He seems to, he is a victim, but he refuses to stay there. He refuses to adopt that label and use it to define him, which I think is something that um, many people could, could learn from. If you follow the history of humanity carefully, something becomes very clear. Christianity, following obviously closely on the heels of its, its Jewish roots, introduces us to an upside-down view of the world, where victims and losers and the abject become valued and valuable. The ingenuity of this historical shift cannot be underestimated, but human beings, especially in recent times, have forgotten that siding with the underdog makes absolutely no sense unless it is good for everyone. Abraham, for instance, is called by God to be a blessing to all nations. He's elected in a way, although not in the Calvinist sense, and um, and in that way he he becomes you know a blessing to others jesus is crucified to draw all people to himself so that that centrality of that figure becomes a, a way that others are brought into the the space of redemption god re rebukes in a way not to demean or belittle but to save and make whole that's what we see when he speaks to job's friends and that is the idea that i want to leave you with at the end of this penultimate episode in this series on the book of Job. I know, I fully realize that I'm playing a risky interpretive game here. The reason I do this is because I really want to challenge myself to see new things. And um, in any case, as I said right, right at the outset, I would never presume to ever come to the end of my reading of the book of Job. It's, it's far too brilliant and ingenious um, and prophetic in a way, a text. But I will come to the end of this series. Uh, so please join me for the final episode in the series, which is going to focus on wonder and awe and how to find them. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. Take care.